0: Welcome to the Mission Gathering Thornton message cast Well hey good morning y'all thanks for being here um, like I said I'm kind of congested today and the last time I remember being in church I like had to cut my message off like 10 minutes in so you might get lucky today and I might not be able to finish so but I brought some water here to help myself get through it Well um, if you know me you know and if you get to know me you know that I really love, Sports And I love watching sports. And, and of course, as I've grown up in life and kids and responsibilities have kind of forced me to tone down that obsession with sports, one of the things I still enjoy watching is a good rivalry game, a good, uh, a good game between two, um, two, two sports rivals. So I, you know, I love the passion, the excitement, the enthusiasm that exists between the fans, the players, the coaches, you know, everybody. Uh, And I was thinking about some of the great rivalries in sports. I was thinking about um, Yankees-Red Sox. I'm a big Yankees fan. Of course, I, you know, I despise the Red Sox. Of course, you have to. Uh, And the the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry really goes back to, well, I forget, 1919, I guess. It's in my notes. So in that year, the famous Babe Ruth was actually a Red Sox. And he got traded from the Red Sox to the Yankees or sold, something like that. And for 86 years, the Red Sox did not win another championship, so they called it the curse of the Bambino. Another one was the Celtics and the Lakers, and then the for all for those of us who were alive in the 80s, the Celtics-Lakers were it. They were the big rivalry in the in the NBA, and it was it was Larry Larry Bird and Magic Johnson who were the big rivals. And in some ways, it was the East Coast-West Coast battle, and according to some, even the you know just this epic rivalry that was in the 80s, and then. Uh, you know, for those from the Midwest, it's Michigan, Ohio State, college football, and uh, I guess it is uh, a few years back. It was then new coach Urban Meyer was hired for Ohio State, and he said during a pro- his, during a press conference, he said the word Michigan. You know, our competitor is Michigan, which I guess is a big taboo. Uh, I guess you're not supposed to. You're supposed to say that like the the team from up north. So the joke was his. His wife put on Twitter, like, hey, I'm going to go wash his mouth out with soap, because he said the word Michigan. And then, of course, who's our big rival here, Broncos fans? The Raiders. The Raiders, yeah, Nebraska, that's another good one, but CU hasn't done a good job keeping that up, but the Raiders, for sure, even though, man, in time, it seems like the Raiders have gone down, and so have the Broncos, but, uh, and, and, and I don't even know, I don't even really know, understand, like, where that rivalry begins, right? But I guess... In 1999, uh, some Raiders players got in trouble for throwing snowballs at the stands versus the Raiders. And then, if you if, you know more recently, if you remember the Hakeem Shalib chain snatching, which was an epic uh, event. So you know some good rivals. And and when I was in high school, I played high school basketball, and we took our rivals seriously too. Uh, back then, I played for the school called Maranatha Christian, and we. Our big rival was a school called uh, Silver State Christian, which was sadly neither school still exists. You know, that's well, Christian schools, that's a hard business. That's a hard business, let me tell you. This used, school used to be down in Lakewood, Silver State. And uh, the, we, were, we were two rival schools long even before I was in high school. And the goal was always the same. I mean, you beat Silver State, and as, as I understood, there was the same thing. You know, they wanted to beat Maranatha. So it was my junior year. Uh, We were battling out for the division championship, and um, uh, we had already beat them twice that year. We beat them by three points and by seven points in, you know, close, hotly contested games. And they they say in sports, it's hard to beat a team a third time, and it certainly was for us that third time. So, you know, we're in our home gym. The bleachers are packed, um, you know, filled to the brim. There's a catwalk above the gym and their stands, you know, shoulder to shoulder, everybody's screaming, everybody's cheering, and our best player had hurt his had sprained his ankle midway to the game. So we're we were really locked in tight, you know, trailing the entire game. As as the final minute, uh, seconds ticked off, I think we found ourselves down five points. So, you know, we were really we were really troubling. And just, uh, I remember right in front of our bench, there was a scramble for the ball, and one of our players, Jeremy Pulson, he got it, hit a three to bring us like within two. So you know, they go down the court, we foul them, put them to the free throw line, and fortunately enough, they miss. So our point guard is racing down the court, at half court, he throws a pass to one of our players who's right, you know, right underneath the basket, ready to tie the game. But of course, he's surrounded by defenders. He can't get the shot, and we lose the game. It was oh, frustrating still to this day. Well, he lost to Silver State, our bill rival on our court. And, of course, we had to watch them, you know, in, in basketball, things that cut down the nets. We had, to, we had to watch them cut down the nets, and I thought it was really mean. I was frustrated with our school for this. They The next Monday, we went to the gym. The nets there was still just a bare rim hanging there like right in our face just like reminding us, you lost. I'm so mad about that. Um, you know, fortunately the next year we won and uh, my, I still have that piece of net in my letter jacket from high school. So I'm pro- proud of that. But, you know, that, that next year I was, at a, uh, I was at an academic event and I remember there seeing this, this kid from Silver State who was there, another player. And let me tell you, I wanted nothing to do with him at all. You know, he was the rival. He was our enemy. And he was, you know, he had taken our championship. And like I said, fortunately, we, we beat them the next year. Uh, actually, I remember, I was really happy. We beat them like 20 at our home court. My senior year, that was really awesome. Uh, <laughs> and we won the league championship. And every, even to this day, as you can tell, I have a feeling of scorn that seeps through me when I say the word silver state. You know, they were our rival, they were our competitor, they were the enemy, and, and in some ways it confounds me, if you watch sports uh, nowadays, you'll see, after the end of the game, you'll see these competitors, like, you know, at the end of the game, they come together, they hug, you know, they take pictures together, they exchange jerseys, it's like, what? You guys are enemies, you know, you shouldn't be getting along. And, you know, as, as an immature, I guess it is to think about that, you know, we kind of act that way in real life, though, right? You know, we don't we don't have official teams we're a part of, as much as we do in sports, but nearly as distinct, and oftentimes with our own distinguishing teams, we have you know these unofficial teams. Where we have our own activities, apparel, um, activities. Uh, you know, there's a a few months ago there's an article in the New York Times uh, by an author named Paul Lucas. And what's interesting about this guy, Paul Lucas, is he writes for a living on sports uniforms, the different jerseys and and aesthetics of athletics, he calls it. And he wrote this article in the New York Times about how uh, because of, again, without getting too deep into this, because of the, the prevalence of the red, you know, Make America Great Again hats, there's a lot of people who were fans of sports teams with red hats who didn't want to be seen wearing red hats for the sake of, being confused with, quote, unquote, which team they were on. So a, kind of a kind of a humorous example, of some some seriousness to it with you, but kind of a real-life example of how, you know, a sports team or a team in real life, it can be hard to know who's who and, and which team we're supposed to be a part of and what we're supposed to wear or not supposed to wear. You know, even beyond the political sphere, um, as parents, I think parenting can be a, a real-life battle between, you know, you have your the one parent and the other parent and it can be a battle for parenting styles and discipline and and you know choices and then you know amongst uh, amongst couples and parents as a unit you know you're you're fighting with who's raising their kids the best and it becomes this like competition on the playground in school and amongst your friends about you know whose kids are the, the best kids and the growing up the best and doing the best in school Um... But more so than that, I think what what can really wear on us is like these relentless, (coughs) these relentless like loyalty tests that come with being members of the right team. Um, It's funny. I'll mention this. You know, some of these some of these uh, loyalty tests are like you know, uh, forgive me here for being cutting a little close to home, if I can. You know, liberals cannot eat Chick Fil A. Uh, All good moms should breastfeed their babies. You know, real men. Real men drive trucks, right, Ethan? Yeah, Ethan's a real man. And my, my real truck is out there, in case you get, in case you see me during the week with my Chevy Volt, you know, I have my real truck out there. And then I, I, someone told me this this morning, it's kind of funny, good times, this is the Chick-fil-A for liberals. <laughs> I'm on the right team today, I guess, or, or last, and yesterday I was on the wrong team, who knows? Who knows which team I should be on. Um, but far more often than not, these are unspoken norms and rules, um, you know, and you break the wrong rule and you'll end up facing the wrath of, of your team, so to speak. So it seems like, you know, every action, every decision, everything we do must, al- must align with the unspoken values and norms of our team or else we face alienation and rejection. You know, at some point, I think we should stop to wonder, like, what's the point of these teams? What, what is the good that they're doing? Uh, so, so there's a man uh, who lived some time ago, and his, his name was Orville Wright, and no, he's not that Orville Wright. If you're thinking of the Wright brothers, I guess uh, there's a different Orville Wright, although he, I guess he did get to meet that Orville Wright, but this Orville Wright uh, was a military chaplain who served in World War II uh, and at one point, he was the chief chaplain at Oral Bay, which is, I guess it was in New Guinea, in the Pacific Theater. And there he served at an army hospital, ministering to the, to the, the death and, and those and disfigured and dying, I guess, at the army hospital. Now, we can only imagine, you know, thinking back, what kind of horrors he dealt with and experienced, you know, as these, as these wounded soldiers came back and he tried to care for them in, their, in perhaps their final moments. And I know my my wife's grandfather, karina, her her grandfather served in Hawaii, I think, in World War II, and I think he had to do he served in some kind of medical orderly type fashion. I know he doesn't even like to talk about it because of you know you can only imagine what he had to, what he had experienced just with that kind of with that kind of violence and tragedy. But this um, you know this oral right, uh, because of this what he experienced, he he found it. You know, it took a toll on his faith, and he found himself questioning, you know, the very foundations of his faith. So the thing is, Orville had grown up a very conservative Christian. He had been taught to believe that God would only let you into heaven if you did everything right and believed everything right. You know, all your beliefs, all your actions had to be right. On, and he came out of a tradition that taught about God's forgiveness, but had a hard time allowing people to experience. God's forgiveness. So in time, he felt that the faith he had to be taught had been taught was so restrictive that it turned him into someone just cold and indifferent, you know, remote and unattached to the concerns of others, and, and really only concerned about getting things right. Now you can, you know, we can imagine amidst, you know, amidst the horrors and suffering of World War II, and you know, soldiers coming back from battle, scarred and and wounded. You know, you can imagine uh, that he he came through a moment of faith crisis. And Orville found that when soldiers were gathering for worship, before perhaps going out on a mission from which they might not return, from which their buddy might not return, from which they might come back scarred or wounded for life, when they gathered for that worship, they weren't interested so much in hearing about lectures about, you know, proper theological doctrine or, you know, theological disputes. They're looking for something to hold on to in the face of, you know, their potential demise. So when Orville returned home after the war, he found himself unable to return to his previous roots that he, he now found too conflicting and too self-defeating. He had experienced a big, mysterious, inclusive God, full of grace, and being a part of a church that tried to restrict God to only being on one team just didn't feel right to him. So, in time, he found a home in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, a nationwide group of churches that, since its beginning, has sought to bring people together over the common belief that Jesus is the Christ rather than a strict adherence to do's and don'ts. So this is our last week in this series that we've been doing since the beginning of September. And we've been looking at some of the ways our individual stories fit into this broader story we're a part of. And also we've been talking about how some of the things we care about fit in with people uh, just like us in churches like ours who care about things like welcome, inclusion, uh, hospitality, God's grace, and unity. From the beginning, though, when people like us in churches like ours have sought to come together in unity, letting go of the things that divide us, and instead seeking to be unified in the name of the one we worship, Jesus. So many, many years ago, the Apostle Paul, who was an early follower of Jesus, he wrote a letter to some people to an early church in the city of Galatia, the ancient church, and he addressed this same issue. See, early on, the message of Jesus appealed to a broad array of people in the ancient Roman Empire. So there was rich people, there was poor people, there was slaves, there was free, there was men, there was women, there was Jews, there was Gentiles, there was upper class, there was lower class, and so on. And invariably, as we can imagine, with such a wide array of people, such a diverse gathering of people, eventually these outside social structures and norms and classes began to creep their way into the gathering of Jesus' followers. So these followers of Jesus began to be splintered, you know, around their various social norms. In the book of 1 Corinthians, we see Paul addressing like three of these you know, some people are like, oh, I follow this guy named Apollos, I follow uh, Paul. So they're, they're splintering about who is going to be the leader. And and more so, there's another controversy that Paul writes to in that in the letter of 1 Corinthians about whether they could be whether you had to be circumcised or not circumcised. Uh, we'll leave that there. And then also in 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul talks about, you know, because when they're having communion, there's there's these rich people having all their big, scrumptious meal, and then these poor people are just like huddling over like this tiny little cracker. And Paul was like, hey, this won't work. If you're all together, if you're all followers of Jesus, you have to be all in this together. So he wrote, again, this was the same issue that was happening in a different city, these Galatians. And, then, and Galatians 3.28, in the midst of this letter he's writing to the Galatians, he says... Uh, Something very stern, he says, you know, there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, there's no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. In other words, these old labels, they just don't apply. Your identity, first and foremost, is in Christ. Nothing, not your sex, your race, your background, your beliefs, should separate you from other followers of Jesus. So for us, and this broader network of churches we're part of, called the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, this principle of unity has been a part of our tradition from the beginning. Early on, folks would say we have no creed but Christ, because again, early in the church and as the the church began to form over the hundreds and thousands of years, creeds and doctrines and and theological assertions became to be founded and stated and written down and and. Early on in our tradition, people say, you know what, our only creed is going to be that we follow Christ. Meaning there's no test of faith, no doctrines to adhere to, no, no theological statements to attest. We're going to come together to worship and follow Jesus. It's about unity, not uniformity. Does that make sense? Unity, not uniformity. Uniformity is about demanding everyone look, act, act. And think the same, dress the same, whatever. Unity about different people coming together to complete a common goal. So every Monday I take um, I take Lexi to this or every other Monday, I take Lexi to this cooking class for kids down at the Anythink Library on Huron, if you know what that is. And <laughs> and usually I'm just trying to like sit there and watch, you know, Monday night football on my phone. You know, because I'm a A-plus dad right here. Um, but I can't help but notice the, the diversity that's in the room. Like there's kids and families from, you know, different, different, different ethnicities, probably different religions, certainly different social uh, economics statuses. But these kids and these families, they all come together for the purpose of making a simple meal together. And what I found really cool last week was that how, how cool it is that the kids take the initiative on their own to make sure that every child has a chance to participate in making part of the meal. I know, you know, Lexi, it was only her second time there, and there was this one girl who was like, you know, these kids at her table were like, hey, Lexi, you haven't had a chance to do something. Why don't you do this? And making sure they included everyone. You know, we've been looking, we've been looking as as a society, right? We've been looking to the children for our inspiration to bring unification and and inclusion to our society for how, for at least for my 37 years, it seems. But as you know, here I am 37, and it seems in many ways we're just as divided as we were when I was a kid, and we've yet to see those dreams come to fruition. And instead, as 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 I've aged, as my peers have aged you know we've fallen into these same cultural uh cliches and cliques and norms that are about isolating and alienating those who differ from us so what else can we do then how do we get out of that endless or seemingly endless cycle of just falling into these divisions and cliques and social norms so in our, in our tradition, being that there's there's no dues to pay, um, no dotted lines to sign, no doctrinal statements to adhere to, what's held people together is their commitment to one another, something uh, a word we call covenant. Now the word covenant is a noun, meaning an agreement, a, a contract, or a compact that speaks between understanding between. Two or two or more parties, but what I find interesting is that the word covenant can also be used as a verb. My mom was a grammar teacher, so I kind of like, you know, sometimes digging into what uh, parts of speech that's the word. So the word covenant can also be used as a verb, talking about um, something we do, something we take action in doing, uh, something we're going to do. Now and then into the future, you know, when we, when we marry, we covenant to love and support one another now and into the future and sickness and in health as long as we both shall live, right? So those of us who've been married or perhaps, you know, in a long-term relationship, we made some kind of commitment to each other. We can attest to the significance and what's required of that, that covenant, of understanding covenant as a verb. Because let me tell you, as someone who's been married 15 years, when the stress of life and work and bills and kids and mortgages, when that starts to rear its ugly head, when life happens, sometimes we have to lean into that covenant we made and said, hey, you know what, I'm still doing this. I'm still into this. Now and then into the future. And really, I think it can be the same exact way at church. Because sometimes we're people, we don't always get along. Sometimes we're going to think differently about things, but we're going to say, hey, we're committed to each other, we're covenanting together for the purpose of making God's good news made in Jesus known to our community, to our world. So here at Mission Gathering, we're never going to ask you to complete a test of faith, or adhere to a doctrinal statement, or completely agree with every theological assertion. We're going to let you be you. But we are going to ask you and invite you to covenant, to come together and work together toward the common mission and purpose of sharing God's good news made known in Jesus. Remember unity, not uniformity. So the choice before us then, to me, is quite simple. And it's, it's clearly on display right now in our nation. We can pick teams, we can choose sides and fight like tooth and nail to achieve victory for our team, or we can come together in spite of our differences and work together for the good of all. One thing for sure, we'll never reach our potential, we'll never complete apart what we can do together when we unify under our identity as followers of Jesus. I believe that a unified church won't be built by demanding you embrace certain tests of faith, certain practices of faith as one group or another sees them. I believe that we'll be a unified church when each of us in our diversity loves one another, embraces our differences, and finds find ways to work together in worship, welcome, and service to a broken and divided world. It's about unity, not uniformity. So I invite you to covenant with us. And I'll, you know, we are a you know, where uh, as it was said to me today, it's not about membership. It's not about signing on to the dotted line. Um, it's about being a part of covenant of God's church. What we're here as part of God's church, trying to do together, and as being our being the kind of church we are, uh, we're going to let you decide how and what manner you'd like to make that covenant. Whether that's in your heart with God, whether that's a, a Conversation will let you be you in that way. we we'll invite you to be a part of the thing we're doing together. Let's pray. Hey, thanks for tuning in with us this week. You can check back for new messages each Tuesday. If you're in the Denver area, come see us this Sunday. You can find out more about our service times, as well as the mission and vision of M.G. Thornton, at mgthornton.org. That's M-G-T-H-O-R-N-T-O-N. Dot .org See you next week